night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Kate Sukel. She is a science journalist and author of The Art of Risk, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance. Uh, Kate asks the question, first of all, she asks, are risk takers born or made? Uh, at, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Kate. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And as you and I discussed before we got on the show, you've been on the show before with one of your first books, uh, so it's really it's a pleasure to have you back again. Uh, risk-taking. Okay. You talk about, you explore in the book case studies and you use science to explore risk-taking in work, play, love, and life, showing us how to understand our own behavior so that we can have personal success. Um, is that a good sort of synopsis of, of what you cover in the book? Yeah, I, I mean, I think what it came down to, what, when I started this project, I was really curious about risk-taking because I'd always considered myself a big risk-taker in life, and I thought it was a big part of my success. I think most people, you know, uh, do think that you got to, you know, dare to win or uh, risk big, win big. Um, and all of a sudden I found myself kind of risk-averse. For the first time in my life, I, w- I was saying no to a lot of things. I was kind of hiding out in my house, um, and I, was, I felt like I was focused on the wrong thing. So I wanted to better understand risk-taking. Um, but more than that, I wanted to look and compare and contrast what was happening in the laboratory with what was happening in the real world. So I spoke with risk-takers like Steph Davis, who's a renowned um, free solo climber and base jumper. I talked to a neurosurgeon, David Baskin, who's one of the leading. He's the guy you want to go to when they tell you that your brain tumor is inoperable. Um, you know, I'm I writing that to, down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was talking to uh, you know, a, a, a firefighter, an Army Special Forces operator, a teenager, all successful teenager, uh, successful risk-takers, rather, um, to get an idea of how did they think about risk. And what was fascinating to me is what they said dovetailed so well with the science. And not only that, regardless of their domain, whether they were opening up people's skulls or jumping off of, you know, cliffs with nothing but a parachute, they all had remarkably similar things to say about the way that they vetted risk. And what that means is that it's something that we all can take advantage of. It's not just for our superheroes, um, you know, and, and, you know, drug addicts. It's for people who, who really want to make the most out of life. So, in other words, it applies to all of us. We all take risks. We all take, no matter who we are, we are taking risks every day, whatever those risks happen to be. Yeah. I have two things because you said, you know, you considered yourself a risk taker, and then you said at some point you felt like, oh, now I'm afraid to do things. I'm not taking risks. How old were you? I mean, was there anything happening in your life that you can relate it to? Yeah, so I was, I call it my midlife crisis in reverse. So I sort of hit 40. I had gotten divorced. Um, you know, I was living, I had been living in Europe for many years and had moved back to Houston, Texas, where uh, things are, are a little different than Europe. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was in, I was in suburbia. Instead of getting a boy toy and a Corvette, you know, I got myself a nice, reliable station wagon and joined the PTO. Um, and really what I found myself doing was saying no to a lot of things. And part of me thought, okay, am I saying no? Because I'm, I'm older, I'm wiser, I'm more experienced. I know what's at stake. Or am I saying no because, you know, 
something's wrong with me. Something's dramatically changed. Well, can, now we have to, okay, so you, those are the questions that you were asking personally, obviously. Yeah. Um, and so then, then where did you go? I mean, I mean, then, yeah, yeah go well, ahead. The idea was I wanted to know what risk-taking actually was. Was it really that secret to my success that I thought it was or just a crutch? And then I wanted to understand how to do it better because, you know, I I was a single mom. I had a kid to take care of. I had a mortgage to pay. I I didn't want to risk so much and start doing stupid things so that I lose my shirt and my house. But I wanted to add more joy to my life, more excitement. I wanted to, you know, think about maybe starting another relationship. I wanted to think about expanding my writing business. I wanted to do some new things. And so that took me directly. My, my background is in neuroscience. I'm a brain nerd by, you know, just it's part of who I am. I want to figure out what makes us tick. And but again, I really wanted to temper it with those real-world stories. So I went out and visited all these successful real-world risk-takers. I looked to the science, and I tried to put it all together. And really what I found was, you know, I, I had thought for a long time people were risk-takers. It was a personality trait, right? He's a risk-taker. She's a risk-taker. You can't try to attempt what they do. If you do, you would, you would fail because you're just not built like they are. Um, but really, risk-taking is just a decision-making process, and it's one that all of us make, even your really risk-averse Aunt Millie who's afraid to leave the house. Um, All of us go through this same process. Our brain works in in a similar way, um, and all of a sudden it it started to click. You know, of course, these people I interviewed, they may happen to utilize this decision-making process uh, in situations that involve more gravity or gunfire, so to speak, um, but they really are sort of working out the calculations in the same way. And that, that was exciting for me because that meant that um, it wasn't about trying to change my personality or um, really push myself into things that I didn't want to do because I'm not really, I've, I've skydived before, but it's not something that I want to pursue as an all-time hobby. Um, and, but it does mean that I can think about risk in a different way so that I can, you know, find these opportunities that, that bring me joy, that motivate me and move myself towards my long-term goals. So what you're saying, Kate, is that actually risk-taking is the same, the process is the same for all of us. The risk right. may be different or what we perceive, you know, Aunt Millie may take a different risk than a professional poker player or a, a surgeon, mm-hmm. but it's a risk for her. And the, uh, the process that we go through is the same in terms of whether yeah. we determine whether we should do this or what choices we should make. Mm-hmm. So we all have this, this really sophisticated circuit in our brain that links up basically, you know, the brain's reward system with the brain's executive control system. So certainly a lot of us, we, we like rewards. Those are the things that we, we take the most risks for, right? Prestige, money, the girl, good food, good sex. Those are the things we're willing to push the envelope for. But of course, you know, even though good food, good sex, it's great, you may need a mechanism in your brain to tell you, if not no, at least not right now. You know, oh, you know, that person's very attractive, but hey, that's your boss's wife. You probably need to stay away or, oh, gosh, that chocolate cake looks delicious, but you just had a pan of brownies at lunch. Um, so it's helping you to say not always no, but at least not right now and, and think about things in terms of your long-term goals. So really any risk, um, and it really is just a decision uh, that has some uncertainty involved, and that's whether you are playing that final table in the World Series of Poker or just deciding whether or not to have that third cup of coffee in the morning because you know it might give you the jitters at 2 o'clock, right? 
um, you know, the same process is going forward in the brain. And what the brain is trying to do is sort of take these shortcuts to make up for those uncertainties, to try to tell a story, to fill in the gaps, um, to fall back on habits, to help you not only, you know, survive in, in the world, but, but hopefully thrive as you make these decisions. Well, how does this work? I mean, you mentioned you're a single mom, and so obviously you have kids, or at least one. So how does that work when you're raising children to make good choices and to take good, there are good risks. I hear you saying kind of like there are risks that are good and maybe risks that are not, like if you've eaten a bag of brownies or a plate of brownies and then eating a <laughs> well, whole chocolate eating cake. eating a bag of brownies, you know, it, it, it's, more, uh, it's more comforting than one might realize. Um, but actually, I'm getting away from saying that risk is good or bad because this okay. is the other thing that the scientists are learning is that risk is necessary. You have to get out there and sort of, you know, put yourself in the middle of uncertainty in order to learn, to grow, and to build new skill sets. And so when we're talking about our kids, we've become a very risk-averse society. We want to try to wrap them in proverbial bubble wrap and protect them at all costs. But there is a danger to that, and that is allowing our kids to grow up and and not be able to navigate the world around them. And I'll I'll give a funny example. You know, when I had my son, I had him in Europe. And so all of my American mom friends, as soon as they'd seat their toddlers down at the table, they would take their butter knives away because, you know, you don't want to give a toddler a knife, even one that's, that's pretty dull. Um, in Europe, they don't do that. The kids have knives. They start with the butter knives, and then they work up. And usually by the time they're seven or eight, they're cutting their own meat with a steak knife, and everything's safe because they've learned how to use it. I was actually just out. My son's now 11 with some friends, and his mom was still taking his knife away. So you have an 11-year-old, somebody who's on the cusp of middle school, who can't work a steak knife yet. This is unfortunately, this is I problem. think that's pretty. Yeah, I think that example, perhaps not always with the butter knife, but I think that's a really good example. I mean, we do the same thing. I mean, I, I think about little children. Instead of they learn how to navigate their world just physically because they maybe bump their heads on a piece of furniture mm-hmm. or they fall down. And now I, I go into these young mothers' homes, and you see the, the the tables are the corners are covered up almost with bubble wrap, and everything is sort of like everything that could possibly be dangerous has something plastic over it. Uh, that's not a yeah. way to, yeah. I mean, I think that's and, what you're and, talking about. That's, that's what we don't realize. When we let kids take risks, when we get, let them go outside and climb trees and we don't get in the middle of every disagreement they have with a sibling or a friend, what kids are learning, they're learning their limits. They're learning how to sync up their body with the world around them. They're learning how to um, emotionally regulate themselves. They're learning how to work well with others, how to problem solve. And so, yes, when we, we take our homes and we baby-proof them up to the nines, we probably are, you know, saving ourselves from a trip to the ER with a potential, you know, couple stitches or a lost tooth. But what we're, what we're doing is we're stopping them from understanding how to move around a world that isn't, you know, baby-proofed, and they're going to have to do it one day. So let's fast forward. What kind of adults are we creating? Well, you mentioned the 11-year-old in middle school who still can't use a butter knife. Right. Um, I, yeah. You know, I think that, you know, that's a, that's a little simple thing. But, you know, we're, we're talking about kids who 
um, you know, they need their parents to completely schedule their lives. They can't figure out time management, you know, once they get to school. They have to have their moms telling them how to do their homework. Um, you know, I just went back to my alma mater where I got my master's, Georgia Tech, to give a talk. And one of the professors there was telling me about how many moms actually call him about their kids' grades and rescheduling finals and that. If you're in college, you should be doing your own schedule. Um, you know, we have kids who may be getting hurt as young adults or teenagers because they just really don't know how to move out in space. Um, that's the thing. When you don't put kids out and let them take these little risks, they can't get the skills to figure out the big risks later. And what that means is they really don't know how to to do well in, in, once they're on their own. They're, they need that scaffolding always in place. So then what happens? They graduate from college. They go to graduate school. They, they get a job in business or a profession. Uh, and these are the people that we rely on, let's say professionals, or whether it's a lawyer or a doctor or accountant. Mm-hmm. Or um, they decide they may to smart. come home and move to your basement because they're not quite sure how to handle it. Yeah. You know, they, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to figure out how to save for their retirement or figure out their benefits. They, they make mistakes because, you know, when, when it really matters because they weren't allowed to make mistakes when there, there was, you know, some cushion in place for them. All right. So let's get back to the book. I mean, we are talking about risk-taking, but like specifics mm-hmm. in the book, because you have case studies, uh, maybe some of them you've already mentioned, but let's talk about those, because that really makes an impression on people when we can give an example. I mean, I know you sure. can find this. Yeah, okay. Well, so Steph Davis, she's a free solo climber. That means she climbs, you know, these rock faces and cliffs that are like a thousand feet high with no ropes. Um, and she's also a base jumper. So she will climb to the top of these these peaks and then she'll jump off of them with nothing but a parachute and a squirrel suit. And it's funny because you watch these videos of her and I will tell you, uh, you know, even as someone who has participated in extreme sports, I watch her sometimes and I think she is nuts. And so when I met her, I really thought I was going to be meeting this kind of, you know, out there, um, you know, really extroverted, crazy kind of person. And she is so thoughtful and quiet. She's kind of a homebody. She's very reasoned. She's, she's very, you know, stoic. I, it was amazing to me. And I think what, for, with her, what really sort of challenged me were two things. The first is, we liked, I think we like to tell ourselves that the reason why some of these risk takers do what they do is because they don't really understand the outcomes. And in Steph's case, she's actually lost her husband to base jumping. They were in Italy. She jumped off. She landed safely, and then her husband, Mario Richard, um, hit the cliff wall and died. So she really understands at a personal level what the consequences of her actions can be. Um, so that whole idea that they don't know or they don't think about it, that's not true. They, they really do know all the outcomes. And in fact, because they're so well-versed in their particular domain, and she's such a gifted climber and such a gifted jumper, she really you know, knows the ins and outs of the risks. So are but we talking other- about calculated risk? The other side of it is she made this great point. She said, I think when we look at risk takers, all we ever see is the outcome. We don't think about all the hard work that went into that. So while, you know, with her, a video may go up of her taking a particular jump or making a particular climb. Um, You know, we talked a little bit about Alex Honnold, who's a um, rock climber who doesn't use ropes. And he puts up these videos on YouTube. And if you're bored at work or bored at home or, you know, in the, the school pickup line, 
Google Alex Honnold YouTube, H-O-N-N-A-L-D, and look at some of these videos because you'll think, this kid is insane. Um, But what we don't see outside that video is him learning that route, him using ropes to learn all the handholds, him talking to all the other climbers about, you know, what it takes to successfully get to the top of this particular wall. Um, There is so much work, all the physical conditioning, of course, to keep his body in top form so he can, you know, grunt his way through certain parts of it. We only see the outcome. We don't see all the work. And I think that's true whether we're talking about rock climbing, whether we're talking about, you know, somebody who's just brokered this amazing business deal, somebody who, who plays poker when we turn to ESPN and see them on the final table at some big poker uh, tournament. We don't see all the work that got them to that point, and it is a lot of work. The successful risk taker is the thoughtful risk taker. They're, they're long-term planners. They know their stuff inside and out. They do their homework. And, Kate, would you also say that the, the risk taker, people take risks in different areas, and they're, as you say, we only see the outcome. But, for instance, I'll just myself, I mean, I would not take a risk climbing, a, a, doing rock climbing, as you described it, but I would take a risk uh, doing an audition or being master of ceremonies for a big mm-hmm. show that I had never done before because that's my area of expertise and I want to mm-hmm. take it a step further and a step further. So there are different areas that one feels comfortable in or one has a lot of experience in. So that the risk-taking is, is, is that true? Come that is so. And yeah. what was really funny, what really illustrated this for me, and, and this gentleman didn't make the book, but he was a firefighter. And, you know, just a really macho out there kind of firefighter. And when I interviewed him, we were talking on the phone, and it was right around tax time. And, um, you know, I had told him that he was talking about he had a meeting with his accountant. And I'm not exactly sure how it came up. But I ended up telling him that I had just finished my own taxes using TurboTax. He was appalled that I did my own taxes. Absolutely appalled. He was like, you could get audited. And all of a sudden, this guy who had been so, you know, confident and was telling me all about how great it was to rush into burning buildings and be an EMT and all the crazy stuff he sees on a regular basis and can take in stride was starting to freak out at me about doing taxes. And, you know, it made me realize, you know what? He understands. He's so well-trained as an EMT and firefighter. He knows the ins and outs of that. He knows his limits. What he's not trained on is the tax code. And so that's not an area where he feels comfortable, you know, taking risks. He wants somebody else to, to, to get in there and, and, you know, make those calculations for him. But it was really a hilarious conversation because all of a sudden he turned from, you know, this big macho dude to this kind of, you know, <laughs> petrified, well, how could you do that? I don't understand. Uh, in just under five seconds and just a mention of taxes. Well, that's a great example. That's, per- that's exactly what I was talking about, perfect example. What about those people, though, who really are adverse to risk, even if they have the skills, but they're still mm-hmm. afraid to make the choice. Let's say they have a lot of information. They're not just taking a risk that, that it's something that's, you know, just way out of line with what they would able, be able to, to do or accomplish, but they still don't take that risk. Why? Well, there, there can be many reasons. I, and I want to take a step back from that before I answer that question to say another problem we have is a lot of times we use risk-taking synonymously with terms like impulsive behavior, and those two aren't necessarily the same things. There's successful to risk-taking, there's, there's healthy risk-taking and unhealthy risk-taking. And when you're active impulsively by the seat of your pants, 
you know, that's the kind of stuff that end, ends up with you, you know, injured, dead, or incarcerated. So um, not thinking things through is clearly different. You also have people who are different, have different levels of sensation seeking. So again, Steph Davis, she loves the rush. She loves, you know, the high of, of climbing and jumping. That isn't my kind of cup of tea, but she's the sort of person that needs a little bit more stimulation in her life. Some people need a lot less. Um, and then you also see stress levels. Some people are, for, for a variety of genetic and environmental reasons, are better at dealing with stress. They're more resilient. And some of us, you know, get a little freaked out even by simple things like dinner prep and work deadlines. So there are these individual differences, and certainly that's going to play a role into what kind of risks you're comfortable taking. Um, on top of that, what we see is there can be risk aversion as well as impulsive behavior in certain um, neuropsychiatric conditions. So with anxiety, people can be a lot risk averse because they, they basically have this negative thought loop in their head that's telling, oh, this is going to be bad, this is going to be bad, this is going to be bad. And, and so they really can't calculate out the risk properly, even with all the information. They need help to kind of reset their thinking in a way where they can, um, you know, sort of effectively assess the situation. So, so those are some reasons. But I think what, what it comes down to for a lot of us, it's a matter of, you know, just what are we passionate about, what we're willing to do, what's worth it to us. All right, let's take it up, too, because I know that you can discuss this one, cause, and it's obviously very current. Let's talk about the election, 2016. <laughs> yes. What are the risks? Risk for us as voters, risks for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in terms of how they're going to run the campaign? Let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's put it, yeah, talk to us about that. Well, what's been really interesting to me has been Donald Trump not wanting to state positions. And he kind of comes out and says, well, you know, if I'm president, I don't want to have to lock myself in a corner. I want to be able to adapt and and move with the world. And, you know, a lot of people think that's really smart. And at face value, I think, okay, I can can understand why he doesn't want to get locked into a specific decision. But the risk there is he's not really telling us what his values are, what he's willing to do, what he's not willing to do, um, how far he's willing to take things. And uh, he's, every position that he's talked about, whether it, it's, it's about taking out terrorist families or, uh, you know, using nuclear weapons or torture, you know, he's kind of backtracked on. Um, and just this week he was talking about, uh, you know, treasury bonds and, and giving them a haircut so only paying back it cents on the dollar and then backed away from that. So the risk there is by not settling on a position is that we don't really know what he stands for, you know, other than winning, I guess. Um, he's very, very, uh, very, he, he stands on winning all the time. Um, but I think what's been really interesting about this whole election cycle and the real risk is for the voters, because what I hear time and time again, it's like if my candidate doesn't get the nomination, I'm not going to vote. I'm going to take my vote and go home. I think that's very risky and and really not the way that that we should be thinking about things. Um, I think that people are really angry. They've been very fueled by emotion. And, you know, that is one of the things that can really mess with a a good decision. Um, It really weights the variables differently when you're looking at a risk, uh, you know, a decision under uncertainty, including your vote. And so if you're only thinking in anger, you're not thinking about all the other um, aspects of the decision that may be really important later. The other thing I'd say that that's kind of a risk, um, and you know, is that 
so many people are only thinking about the presidential race. Um, you know, we live day to day in our communities and our states and the people that really have the power to make the most difference in our day to day lives are our local um, elected officials. So why aren't we doing more research into the people that are running for district attorney, for judges, for our state senator, um, for the state house? Because these are the people that really, you know, are going to affect things at a local level. So I think so much of the talk has been about risk with the election, but it's really what they've been saying are, let's take some gambles. And again, the, the successful risk taker is thoughtful, prepared, does their homework. They're going to know their, their candidate very well. They're going to know their stated positions and, and see whether or not they align with their values. They're not voting just based on anger or sadness or, you know, uh, a hope that the impossible won't happen. Um, and they're they're thinking about things you know through a clear lens. Um, so we're so not my doing concern it. with with the elections that so many people are actually taking a gamble and not really you know moving ahead and making smart decisions both as candidates and as voters. Right. So there's a whole lot of motion you say involved on both sides, and that really shouldn't be the case. We we should really if our risk has to involve good information in terms of how we make our decision. Well, as voters, for instance. Uh, although sometimes the problem with that is there's so much information, I'm never sure what's accurate and what's not. I mean, because there are so many different places to get information. Let's right. say about I think, either one you know, of the candidates. Uh, PolitiFact yeah. is a great place because it's a Pulitzer Prize winning fact checking organization. Um, I think that that's kind of a wonderful place. Um, I think, you know, what's been really good for me for this election cycle is I've gotten away from the 24 hours news cycle and sound bites. I got to a point a few months ago uh, with a lot of the, uh, the GOP debates where my outrage meter was uh, just too high. You know, as soon as they started talking about Trump's hand and other things that are just fine sized, I was like, okay, this is not, this isn't going to help me make a good decision. I need to step away from it. And so I started reading the newspapers. And I, you know, got away from all the sound bites. And I think it's it's been really helpful to get an idea of, of what our candidates are pros, uh, proposing and what really they can do, what what they're promising, and and whether or not they can deliver on those promises. Okay, so the candidates have have a certain responsibility, but so do we. You're saying so? Yeah, we, have, we're, we yeah. are the voters. We are yeah. the people. And it was funny, John McCain this past week. You know, he ended up coming out and endorsing Trump and said the people have spoken. But my question for the people is: Are we sure that we're speaking in the right way? Have we have we really are we getting behind the candidate? And you know, this is still going on in the Democratic Party on the race between Hillary and and Bernie Sanders. Are we making sure that we're backing the horse we really want to back? That is going to, um, you know, it aligns with our values. Understanding, of course, that not everybody in the United States is going to be exactly like us. They're aligning with our values, our country's values, and are really working to not put themselves ahead, but the country ahead in the future. Well, we have to say goodbye now. Uh, great, obviously, talking to you again. I uh, want to recommend the book, so The Art of Risk, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance, Kate Sukel. And Kate, um, the website that we can go to get more information about you, because you do a whole lot of other things, too. We didn't have a chance to get to that, but and uh, information about you and your book. Yeah, you can find me at katesukel.com, K-A-Y-T, 
S-U-K-E-L.com. The Art of Risk is sold wherever books are sold. It was actually named as a a best uh, business and leadership book um, in in March by Amazon, so you can definitely get it there. Um, And if you do go to my website, I have a few events coming up, uh, one in New York on uh, May 26th, and I'd love to see you. Great. Great talking to you, and I hope to see you there. Thank you so much for being on the show. Great show. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. We're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Dr. Stephanie Fabian. She is uh, the author of Mayo Clinic, The Menopause Solution, A Doctor's Guide to Relieving Hot Flashes, Enjoying Better Sex, Sleeping Well, Controlling Your Weight, and Being Happy. Uh, Dr. Fabian is an Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of the Office of Women's Health and the Women's Health Clinic at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Menopause. uh, Menopause is one of those topics that, well, now we do talk about menopause, probably, you know, 20 years, maybe, I don't know, 30 years ago, women didn't necessarily talk about menopause. We just sort of went through it. But today, there's a lot of information out there, including your book. 
So I guess my first question is, I mean, you're tackling all these issues, sleeping well, enjoying better sex, controlling your weight, being happy. Um, how do we do that? It, it all sounds kind of very, you know, it sounds wonderful, but most women don't seem to be able to get through many of those kind issues that come with menopause. Um, they have difficulty. And difficulty also, I think, sometimes in talking with their physicians about it. Um, so... That's why your book You're is so right important. You're right about that. So, yeah. uh, you know, we all have to go through menopause. It happens to 100% of us as women who reach the age of menopause, which on average is 51 years in the United States. And in the past, um, we didn't have a lot of resources, and we just sort of had to tough it out and go through it. And um, women were, were pretty good about that. But, you know, there was probably a lot of suffering going on as well. And fortunately now, we have more information available, and there are indeed many options for treatments. Now, that's not to imply that everyone has a problem. Certainly some women simply stop their periods and really never have an issue with menopausal symptoms. But the majority of us, about 75% of us, are going to have some hot flashes and night sweats. And there are many other symptoms that go along with menopause too, like trouble sleeping, trouble concentrating, even joint aches can be a symptom of menopause. And the important part is that there are now some things that we can do about these symptoms. Not everybody needs the same treatment. And in fact, now we can actually individualize treatment for menopausal symptoms. When you say individualized, I think that's really key, doctor, because I, I think there is a tendency to everybody, you know, if you're going through menopause and these things are going to happen to you, then it's just one kind of treatment. I mean, without really talking to, and this is coming from a social work perspective, talking to that individual, because one woman might define the same kinds of hot flashes as not really that bothersome, whereas another may think that, you know, it's horrific and it, you know, impinges on her family life and or work. So the same symptoms have different meanings for different women, I guess is what I'm saying. So maybe the treatment would be different. That's exactly right. Uh, and some women do have hot flashes, but they don't really bother them. And in fact, this is very interesting. We've looked at this in our clinic about what symptoms are the most bothersome. And although hot flashes and night sweats are the most common, they're not necessarily the symptoms that bother women the most. And the ones that bother women the most tend to be the mood symptoms and weight. Those are the, the two big ones that really tend to bother people the most. Okay, so let's talk about mood symptoms. What kinds of mood symptoms? What would you look for as you go? Because menopause doesn't, it isn't a one day, uh, you have your period, and the next day you're, you know, you're done. It's menopause, and you get all, develop all these symptoms. It's kind of a gradual, uh, it sort of happens gradually, different time frame, I guess, for different women, but it's a gradual, um, a gradual change. So how does one recognize, okay, the mood symptoms, that this may or may not be related to menopause, and do I need to do something about it? That's a great question. So we know that women who tend to be sensitive to hormonal changes in terms of mood tend to struggle a little bit more during menopause. So for instance, those women who might have had premenstrual symptoms, a lot of mood issues in the second part right of their menstrual cycle right before their period, um, and women who maybe who have had baby blues, those women tend to have more of an issue at menopause because their mood tends to be a little more hormonally related. Um, now, if a woman has actually had a mood disorder like major depression in the past, then she is more likely to have a mood problem at menopause. But that's not to say that anyone who has never had a mood problem can't have trouble at menopause. We certainly see that as well. There just can be a gradation. Now, in terms of what to do about it, you're right. This We need to think about these symptoms in terms of 
passing not just a day or two or a month, um, they probably are going to go on for quite some time. And these symptoms may actually start before a woman's last menstrual period by a couple of years. So we start to have that swinging and rocking around in what we call the perimenopausal time frame leading up to menopause. And then menopausal symptoms can last a long time. So we're thinking about more of a long-term solution for some of these problems, not just a, a temporary fix. So for some women, these mood symptoms... It may just be a matter of lifestyle change and making sure we're eating right and getting enough sleep and exercising as we should and using our stress management techniques. But for some women, it's much more serious than that, and they may actually need to see their medical providers to see what other things we need to take into account and what other treatments are needed for these mood symptoms. What are we talking about in terms of statistics, let's say? I mean, is it that bell-shaped curve that, like, uh, you know... I don't. I, I didn't do well in statistics, but one standard deviation or whatever on either side is sort of like the general population. And, and, and then, obviously, if you have people on either end um, with serious mood disorders, as you described before, then probably that's something you, if if it's your, that you would be much more prone to having a crisis when you go through menopause. But generally speaking. Um, if you can do that, like generally, how do women in the United States go through menopause? Do they need help? Do they need counseling? Do they need medication or even talk about um, nutritional supplements? Or do they need hormone therapy? How does that work? Um, and so now we're talking about not just mood symptoms, but symptoms in general, right? Symptoms in general, I guess. Yeah, not just the mood symptoms. Yes. So um, you're right. Think about it as a bell-shaped curve. There, there are truly women who really never have symptoms related to menopause and, and sail through without a problem. I would say that's probably 5% or less. There are women who are still hot flashing in their 70s and they're in my office going, good heavens, really, when is this going to stop? The majority of women probably have some bothersome symptoms for a year or two, and they slowly get better, although recent evidence has shown us that um, hot flashes and night sweats last on um, an average of seven to nine years, Um, and about 30% or more of us will have them for a decade or more. So again, this is not a short-term thing. However, as you mentioned, not everybody's going to need treatment for these symptoms. So um, I would say many women uh, can get by and just um, use lifestyle things for hot flashes and night sweats. However, and I work in a menopause clinic, so my view is kind of skewed here because I see all the women who are really having trouble with it. Um, But there's a a good percentage of women who are going to be disturbed by these symptoms and really bothered by what's going on and can't really focus during the day because they're so miserable and they're hot flashing and night sweating and they're really not sleeping at night. And so it it can affect mood as well and and their overall well-being. And for those women, we certainly do have lots of things to offer. Um, You mentioned hormone therapy, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit. So we know that hormone therapy is still the most effective treatment for hot flashes and night sweats and menopausal symptoms in general. And for women in their 50s who are within 10 years of that menopausal transition and who are relatively healthy, the benefits still, for most case, in most cases, outweigh the risks of hormone therapy. But there is certainly a group of women who cannot or choose not to take hormone therapy, and we have options available for those women as well. Could we talk about, because this is part of the title of your book, Enjoying Sex Better. I don't think I ever had a physician, and, and I, as, I'm, as I'm talking to you and I'm thinking about this, who ever asked me, 
necess- about my sex life and how that was, you know, and how that was being affected by going by menopause. And as you say, it lasts a few years. Um, you know, it, maybe I may have brought it up once, but it's not. It doesn't seem to be on a physician's radar, but it is on all women's radar. And they talk about this amongst themselves and with their girlfriends and hopefully with their partners. But I think that's a huge issue that really doesn't get addressed in the medical community. I I think you're right about that, and that makes me sad. Um, You know, I I think we are, as physicians, we actually aren't well-trained to talk about sexual health. So... Still only about half the medical schools in the United States are teaching sexual health. Um, so there's a big gap in education, and it may be that providers don't know what to do or don't know how to address it. Um, so I think the provider may not have the comfort level as well. But I would empower women to bring up these topics. Um, even if your provider doesn't, you should definitely bring them up. Um, now, what is the most common thing that happens uh, in terms of a woman's sex life? Well, if she goes through menopause, we about half of us are going to develop symptoms of vaginal dryness, and that's related to losing estrogen at that menopausal transition. That vaginal dryness can be a minor irritation or it can be a really big thing. So it can cause itching, burning, um, pain with intercourse. It can also cause urinary symptoms like urinary frequency, having to go to the bathroom more often, or urgency, the feeling like you've got to go right now, or even urge leak. Um, And those are all signs, again, of estrogen deficiency. So they're treatable, eminently treatable. Um, Most women do not receive prescription therapies for this. Um, I would suggest people start with an over-the-counter lubricant. So lubricants are used for sexual activity. Moisturizers are used for maintenance of vaginal moisture every second or third day. If that's not enough, and for many women it isn't, we have uh, many types of vaginal estrogen products. And keep in mind, this is really low dose. It's not systemically absorbed to a significant degree, so it's not going to treat hot flashes or night sweats. But on the other hand, it's safe and can be used long term. So the kind of information that you're talking about is something that it would seem to me should just be kind of the protocol for anybody or a gynecologist or an OB, that that should be part of the information that should initially be given to women who are going through menopause, uh, but it's not. I agree. That's why we wrote the book. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> a guide to what's happening to you. Because women just aren't getting this information. And as I say in the foreword in my book, you know how we get a class when we start our periods in about fifth grade. And we might get a class or a book when you get pregnant and have a baby. But no one gives you um, this class, this information, a book about what's happening to you when you go through menopause. And I think this is really needed out there. I mean, the information that we get and the information that you see on television or on the net is all about how to stay young and that, you you know, 60 is the new 40 and 50 is the new 30. And if you are going through menopause, you know that's not true. And, that is, I mean, so it's very disconcerting. And it's sort of like, well, what about me? Because that's really not the way it is. And, um, and I do think that's an issue. But... Um, so, okay, your book, obviously, that's what we're, why we need to go out and, and buy your book, but sleeping well, because that's another huge issue as well. And uh, women that I know have so many different kind of creative ways of dealing with that, you know, and helping them to sleep better. Let's talk about some of those, sleeping well, going through menopause. 
trying to. Well, we know women have a lot of issues with sleep around that menopausal transition, and one of the most common and one of the first things that happens going through menopause is just insomnia. So even before women start having hot flashes and night sweats, um, they really just find that they can't go to sleep. Um, So we always talk about what we call sleep hygiene. And what that means is um, just making sure that you're doing everything you can to have a good night's sleep. And that means trying to keep your sleep-wake schedule regular. So even weeknight to weekend, um, it should be pretty similar and you should be going to bed at the same time and getting up at the same time. Many women in the United States actually just aren't getting enough sleep. There's not enough time for them to actually get a good night's sleep. So we we talk about that a lot. And in general, uh, somewhere in the range of seven to eight hours sleep per night is what we're aiming for. And, and many women just don't get that. Um, making sure that you don't have screen time right before you go to to bed. So no computer, no TV right before you're going to bed. And the bedroom really is for sleep and for sex. So keeping the screens out of the bedroom is important. Also, when women wake up in the middle of the night, uh, they should try to not train themselves to get up. In other words, um, you shouldn't get up and turn on the TV if you can't go to sleep. You shouldn't get up and do anything productive like do some laundry or start working on the computer because then you're going to train yourself to get up every night at that time. So there are a lot of simple everyday things that we can do to get a better night's sleep. But on the other hand, we do know we have more sleep issues after menopause and more serious ones like obstructive sleep apnea we need to watch out for. So signs of that might be a lot of snoring at night and waking up feeling like you've done battle all night, having a headache in the morning, feeling like you haven't rested even though you've been in bed for several, for eight hours. Um, those are signs that you might have sleep apnea, and, and that is much more serious and should be checked out by your provider. All right, okay, um, all right so what do we do, though, for women who, and you talk about women in their fit, maybe late 40s, early 50s, who are working and traveling, and so you were talking about it's important to establish some kind of sleep routine that helps. But if you are doing that, if you have a job where you are, you know, flying across the country half the month or, you you know, you're doing a lot of different kinds of traveling and different routines, how do you, then what do you do? How do you manage that? Well, different uh, different time zones is pretty difficult to deal with, and I, I've had to deal with that myself a lot. But uh, I think, again, it's staying on the same schedule. You try to keep your routine uh, as similar as you can, and that's hard when you travel, no doubt about that. But exercising, but not too close to bedtime. Watch your alcohol intake because alcohol can actually, although it makes you tired, it disturbs your sleep. Um, and so minimizing your alcohol intake uh, can help as well. So those are some of the simple things that we can think about, and I'm not a huge fan of giving sleeping pills um, for every little sleep disorder. Sometimes they're needed, but for for most women, I think they're probably not. Yeah, not necessary if you, yeah, you don't I agree. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're addictive too, aren't they, sleeping pills after a while? Um, some of them are. Some of them can be. Sleeping well, better sex, and controlling your weight. That's a huge one, literally a huge one, it seems to me. And it's also an excuse, I think, that a lot of women use afterwards. I mean, your body does change, and you have to adjust and adapt to it, as you discuss in your book, obviously. But, you know, the excuse is, well, I went through menopause, so that's why I'm 25 pounds overweight. Not necessary, is it? 
No, you make a really good point. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned, weight is one of the most frustrating things for women in midlife. Now, there are a few reasons why we tend to put on weight during this time frame. One, our metabolic rate slows a little bit, so we're not burning as many calories, and that seems to happen around the menopausal transition. Two, they've done studies that show that we tend not to move as much after menopause, and the reason for that is unclear. It could have to do with some lifestyle things like kids are leaving the house and you're just not as active as you used to be. Three, every last little bit of fat that we have redistributes to the midsection, and I know women can identify with this. And four, the last thing is that we tend to lose a little bit of muscle mass every year after the age of 50, and muscle burns calories. So for all of those reasons, I tell women when they come in frustrated about this, I say the rules of your body changed and no one told you because they say, look, I'm doing the same things, I'm exercising the same amount, I'm eating the same way, and I'm gaining weight. And yes, all that may be true, and yes, you still may be gaining weight because of all of these things that I just mentioned. So it's important to acknowledge that women are still trying. They haven't necessarily given up, but things are changing, and they're putting on weight despite what they've always done to maintain. So what it's going to take is a few more calories burned and a few fewer calories in, acknowledging that that may be a way to maintain, not necessarily even lose weight. Um, exercising regularly is, is not so great for weight loss per se. It's good for weight maintenance. And we simply have to take in fewer calories to actually lose weight. So you're right, we need, women need to take responsibility. But on the other hand, the rules changed. Yeah, the rules change. I think we. I think you just said the key word, acknowledge it, because I, maybe I keep getting back to the same issue. But you know, if you have a, a, a newborn, a baby, you go to the pediatrician, and they're forthcoming about what you should expect in the first three months, six months, a year, and they measure and they ask questions, and you're pretty clear about what's average, at least. I don't want to even or normal. And yet, when women go through menopause, it seems there's not that same protocol. Like, if you, well, your book does acknowledge all of those issues, but that should be kind of a routine thing that physicians talk about before they have to go to your clinic necessarily, where obviously you see the high-risk patients. But if you expect this and if you sort of have a, a framework for what's happening, I think it really helps one to to go through it and not feel sort of in the dark about all this and am I normal and, and, and that kind of thing or having to do the research solely on your own. I, I totally agree with you because so many women come in frustrated and bewildered about what's happening and it doesn't need to be that way. I think if we empower women with knowledge, they can go into it more informed and know what they need to do to help themselves stay healthy as they get older which is what we really want because if they're gaining a bunch of weight, their blood pressure is going to go up, their blood sugar is going to go up, their heart risks are going to go up, and, and about half of us are still going to die of heart disease at some point. Yeah. I mean, it only gets worse. We deteriorate. <laughs> we don't want to say that, but we also live to be, I guess, you know, at what, 82? Is that the average women? Yeah, so the average life expectancy is, yeah. is increasing, and say around the, the year 1900, the average life expectancy for a woman was age 50. So if you think about it, menopause, living after menopause is a relatively new thing. We didn't used to routinely live past the menopausal transition until about 1900. So this whole experience of being 
in menopause or post-menopause for 40% of our lives or more, that's a new experience. And we are just now figuring out how to deal with that. And we're also not simply just living longer, but as women, we are also engaged in the world in a different way, living through menopause, like we were talking about earlier. I mean, you are you probably still in the workforce. You are, you know, you know, very much engaged in, in, in work and community and all those kinds of things. I mean, you're not sitting on the porch uh, eating lemonade or whatever. <laughs> you know, you really... Yeah, so you're you, not in a rocker. Yeah. We're, we you're are, not in a we rocker. Active. Hopefully we you're not in a rocker. And and women want to be active. And I think um, one important thing that we need to think about is it's not just about living longer. It's about living well. And so we need to make sure that we're prepared to do that. And and to do that, we need to take the steps at this menopausal transition to keep ourselves healthy for the rest of our lives. Because when we go through menopause, that's when we start increasing our, our list of chronic diseases. So we need to take that transition as, as a marker of I really need to double down and make sure that I'm doing what I can to help myself stay healthy as I age because that's really that time point where we really, our heart disease risks start going up and we need to pay attention to that and make sure that we're doing what we can lifestyle-wise, which is truly, truly pivotal um, in terms of our overall health. We need to make sure that we're doing what we can to keep ourselves healthy. I have one last question because we only have about three minutes left, but doctor, what about, how, now how does one's spouse, partner fit into this? Um, if your partner is another woman, then probably they understand, or, but if your partner or husband is a male, how, you know, in terms of how engaged should they be uh, in terms of getting all this information? I mean, I don't know whether they go to the clinic, like if you have women coming into the clinic, do their partners come with them? Um, how does that work? You know, that's a great question. Um, so I think it's important to engage your partner, whether it be male or female, in, in what's happening with you. And because some women don't even really understand what's happening to their bodies, it's hard for them to explain what's happening to a partner. So first educating yourself and then educating your partner about what's happening. And again, this is a natural transition. Menopause isn't a disease, um, but we need to be able to communicate what's happening to us and be able to manage symptoms if they're particularly bothersome. And, and that starts with just good communication with your partner. And your partner can be active in, in terms of helping you, and, and in essence, that is a partnership. You're keeping each yeah. other healthy as you age. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I think that's very important. It doesn't matter if it's a male or a female partner. Right. It all has to do with communication in the relationship. Great talking to you today. One minute left. Uh, Dr. Stephanie Fabian, and the title of her book is Mayo Clinic, The Menopause Solution, A Doctor's Guide to Relieving Hot Flashes, Enjoying Better Sex, Sleeping Well, Controlling Your Weight, and Being Happy. And you can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere. Yes, absolutely, wherever books are sold. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning, Doctor. Lots of good information, and I recommend everybody go out, buy the book. Um, We're going to have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a good week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. 
Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 